Hey, welcome back. Another episode of the Stories of Gumption podcast. Conversations with entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and in my opinion, just really, really impressive people. This is episode 34, and it's brought to you by a couple sponsors. The first is Home Heavens Designs. Home Heavens Designs seeks to help you take the stress out of selling, renting, organizing, and designing your home. They can give you tips that'll help you stage, organize, and sell or rent your home quickly. They'll even help you write up your online advertisement on sites like Zillow, Airbnb, and more. Take the stress out of the process of organizing and preparing your home for whatever you have in store. Not selling or renting your home? That's okay. Home Heavens Designs is still here to help you organize, design, and create a beautiful home that's a reflection of you. They can still provide you with great tips and tricks that'll help you increase the value of your home by making tiny changes that cost very little. Visit them on Instagram today at Home Heavens Designs, all one word, H-O-M-E-H-E-V-A-N-S-D-E-S-I-G-N-S. Or you can give them a call at 518-593-5416. That's Home Heavens Designs. Also brought to you by a favorite of mine, Zach and Kate Hoyt's business called Sparkle Clean. Great business. Great uh, power couple in the upstate New York region. They provide professional and economic cleaning solutions to both residential and commercial structures. They specialize in window cleaning, floor care, carpet extraction, and also auto and boat detailing. As we continue to face the coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic, and all that comes with that, consider a cleaning team that is certified to guarantee that 9999 of contagions have been removed from the surface. They have a special certification. They put time and energy into making sure that they're doing the very best to be certified for their customers and potential customers. So give them a call. They'll give you a free estimate, 518-578-2931. That's SparkleClean, S-P-A-R-K-I-L-K-L-E-E-N. Zach and Kate Hoyt, the two owners, great people. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So today, uh, my guest, he's got 30 plus years uh, in the industry of creative problem solving and innovation. He is well-studied, well-experienced, and he has worked with Fortune 100 companies. I mean, uh, the business is called New and Improved LLC. Get a load of this. Worked with Coca-Cola, Kraft, Nestle. Kodak, Texas Instruments, McDonald's, Disney, GM, Mercedes-Benz. I mean, a very impressive guy, but a very humble guy. And um, he and I actually know each other through uh, our previous connection of scouting. While I was the director of the Boy Scouts in upstate New York, he was a scoutmaster. And we really got to know each other that way. And today, we really talk about the myth of the grown-up. And... What he means by that is sort of this this mantra that I really um, appreciate and try to live to uh, throughout my life, but sort of this concept that it, life is a journey, not a destination. It, it takes a lot of interesting uh, directions. I really appreciated the conversation, and uh, I think there's a lot to be gained from this conversation. So I hope you enjoy episode 34, Stories of Gumption Podcast.
Gumption. Defined as initiative, aggressiveness, resourcefulness, courage, spunk, guts, common sense, and shrewdness. Welcome to the podcast. This is Stories of Gumption with your host, Ryan Lee. Okay. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Stories of Gumption podcast. Today, my guest is a very good friend of mine, Bob Eckert. Hey, Ryan. Uh, yeah. Hey, Bob. He's a, he's the CEO of uh, New Improved LLC, which I'd love to have him talk a little bit about that at some point here. But most importantly, uh, I consider him a friend uh, through a past uh, profession of mine, but also um, a part of my life was uh, scouting. And a big part of my life has been scouting and, and the BSA program and all the things it teaches. And Bob has been very active at that for many, many years. And uh, mm. you spoke uh, actually at a Rotary Club meeting, which I know a lot of uh, people who listen to this podcast may uh. remember. So um, you remember that? I do. I do. I, th- I think you instigated that, did you not? I did. I did. <laughs> so uh, for the listeners, just to get things started, um, tell us a little bit about yourself real quick, and then we'll revisit that Rotary meeting. Sure. Well, so uh, my focus in my day job, if you want to call it such a thing, is uh, fostering uh, higher degrees of innovation in organizations, people, communities, governments, nations, and uh, helping them solve problems more effectively than they might have had they not worked with me or met me or worked with my colleagues at New and Improved. So that's what it is. So my day job looks like me uh, training people in creativity and innovation skills or facilitating meetings where the challenges are gnarly and difficult or coaching executives about how they might do that better, uh, that kind of thing. I write prolifically, published extensively, and so that's, that's what I do. But I'm an entrepreneur by heart. And uh, by, you know, my heart, that heart, not the memorization heart. And uh, so we also have other businesses. We have a kind of glamping, camping uh, business as well and a tree farm. We produce maple syrup. So um, I guess I'm of that generation where uh, hyperactivity was not uh, anything that they knew what to do with other than to tell people to figure it out. So that's how I do it. Move from thing to thing, but generally stay productive. It's, it's so cool. I, you know, I, I bring up new and approved occasionally in business conversation with friends and connections in, in the greater Plattsburgh, New York mm-hmm. area. And people, well, LinkedIn people likes are, us call Burlington. If we right, wanted to call it the North Country or Plattsburgh or the yes. Adirondacks, that sure would be nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Most, most people I talk to are actually not familiar with your company. And I, it always puzzled me because, like, man, it's it's a pretty cool thing. And I'm wondering like, what is it, you know, that's causing this disconnect, but it's actually probably by design. Cause as I look at your, your website for new and improved, the man, the client list is pretty impressive. Hmm. Um, I don't need to I guess list them, uh, in the podcast now, but very recognizable brands, national sure. brands. Um, at any given time, we're in about 20% of the fortune 100. 
Yeah, that's I remember crazy. years ago, I was reading an article. This is like almost 30 years ago when Fast Company, the magazine, first started. And there yeah. was somebody that was talking about some little boutique consultant firm that they worked with and how now here's this article about that boutique consultant firm in Fast Company. And the person that had kind of done, they were interviewing clients of this company as well. And one person said, you know, it irritates me that I'm telling you about this company because as they grow, their quality might deteriorate and I don't want to share them. They have limited bandwidth. And so it, it is true that with a couple of, especially of our larger clients, they they consider us a secret, secret sauce, if you will. And they yeah. don't want their competitive set to know that, um, that yeah. where some of these things that they do come from. We can tell some stories, but man, the NDAs that we are under in the commercial <laughs> sector, uh, in yeah. government and, th and not-for-profits, the stuff we do there, they let us tell the stories. Or if it's an old story and it's evolved to something new, they let us tell. But it, it's an interesting thing. You know, people say, well, you know, where are some of your successes? And you're wearing it, but I can't tell you exactly how. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, so that's funny. Yeah. 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 I love it. I love it. So... You take that and you translate it into the conversation I opened with, scouting, right? Mm. You, you, um, I feel like every time I went to visit Troop 12, your, your group in the middle of Adirondacks, your group was the most innovative group. You were most exploratory in what you could do with the kids, the lessons you could teach and how they would learn those lessons. And so it kind of brings me back to that rotary visit because it was sort of a underlying um, statement or, or, or message within that presentation. So I just want you to revisit that for the listeners real quick. Um, that day you shared a story about uh, leadership and scouting and how it pertained to your son's major award. And I know it's his story to share uh, in more detail, but um, why don't you give a little more background on that? Sure. So, um, you know, Luke grew up with this. So he grew up in the creative problem solving world. He, uh, we homeschooled our kids primarily self-indulgently, not for religious or reasons like that, but, but we travel, you know, with the business that I do. And we wanted our kids to be able to avail themselves of that uh, opportunity to learn and grow. And my wife's a New York State uh, permanently certified, I think, uh, general chemistry, science teacher, that kind of thing. So we have the chops to do that. So anyway, um, you know, Luke's been around the creativity and innovation stuff all along. His mom is a firefighter EMT. Um, we live in a very rural area, so oftentimes we're first on scene. I'm a former EMT, no longer maintaining certification. And so, you know, he, he learned to care and learned in scouting to do first aid stuff. So um, the highlights of the story, and I think one of the interesting things that that I appreciated about him with this and how uh, he took the leadership lesson of scouting, which is also the same leadership lesson we teach at New and Improved, the, the integration between the innovators' values and the way that uh, the founders of scouting chose to, at that time, really help young men become healthier young men. It's all very much tied together. So it was, a you know, he's kayaking. He got into whitewater kayaking as part of uh, uh, scouting and uh, got very good eclipsed me and his skills very rapidly. Now he's done it with mountain biking too. And um, we, they were on, I wasn't with them on this trip, but he's on a river, uh, uh, Beaver Fest, I believe it was, or the Moose River, Moose River, that one in that case. 
and uh, two other kayakers more in my age range than his uh, got themselves into trouble. One guy uh, had, they both rolled uh, over and neither one was successful at uh, doing an Eskimo roll. Uh, so they, uh, the first guy exited his boat, got himself in a spot right above a bit of a waterfall and uh, Luke and, and two other uh, folks helped rescue that person and um, got him to shore fine. But the other guy went over the waterfall in his boat um, and was churning in the recirculating. So uh, Luke and two others got, got him out and then Luke had to start mouth to mouth resuscitation and uh, full CPR, old style CPR. The guy wasn't uh, breathing. Um, they're on a rock in the middle of the river and a um, couple unique kind of things about that. So, you know, one is uh, he was not responsive. And so Luke and Ian McMullen, another scout, uh, another Eagle scout from our area, um, did everything they could for about 20 minutes. And they decided that, look, th this guy's not alive. And um, so what can we do? And at that time, down to the shore, my wife was on shore. There's significant rapids between where they were and the shore. Um, and a woman comes down screaming and yelling and uh, Luke and Ian realized this is probably his wife. And Luke turned to Ian and said, we've got to keep going, um, even though, you know, so because it's just she can't see us give up in this setting. And Sheila, by that point, had called EMS and they were on their way. So they did. They, they did that with full knowledge that um, any outcome was going to be negative because the body was fully unresponsive at that point. Um, no heart, you know, no heartbeat, nothing. They just were CPR in it. And so that's, you know, and they, he was not uh, revived. And so he, he died on that rock with Luke and, and um, Ian. The thing that really impressed me about his move, however, is that there was the guy that survived, who was a buddy of his, who was going down the river and tremendous guilt, that kind of thing and difficulty. And all of them had some PTSD yeah. around this. Luke had nightmares and things for a bit as anybody might. Um, he was 15 when he did this. And, um, and so uh, there was this one point where he was in contact with the fella that had survived and just chatting with him and making sure he was all right. And uh, Luke realized that um, the rescue needed to continue. And how the rescue needed to continue is they needed to get this guy out on the river with everybody else that was there and paddle together. Luke's Eagle Project was a whitewater uh, course in Saranac Lake right below the dam. And so, and there was a thing called Luke's Wave. So he put together a group and they um, all got together and invited this fella up. He's from down in the Old Forge, Syracuse area. Mm -hmm. And he came up and he paddled together and, and we had a, a barbecue picnic kind of thing. And even then he was thinking about the mental health aspect of the rescue. So, you know, when you talk about gumption or creativity, oftentimes it's seeing the problem that others might not see and then coming up with an innovative solution. How can we do that? So how do we get this guy on the river? How do we get him back in his boat? How do we get him to uh, find the joy that he and his buddy had been finding in whitewater paddling? Um, so sometimes the rescues are, you know, 
like the rescue that was told, they, they did the cartoon thing in the scouting uh, magazine, you know, uh, drama in real life. Isn't that what it's called? Um, yep. Something like that. And, you know, they drew, drew, drew a Luke and an Ian, <laughs> you know, it didn't look too much like them and drew the whitewater kayak like it was a, uh, a sea kayak. This is whoever did the art right. didn't quite understand. Long, long pointy kayak. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, that's right. But, uh, but still, you know, how do you go beyond just what gets told in the in the story in the press, so to speak, to uh, being creative about how you carry forward the mission uh, to do good for others, um, to to yeah. do my best to help other people at all times, you know, and be mentally awake enough to be able to do to see the need. Um, so that's cool. You know, it was a, a nice yeah. thing. Here's more to that story he could tell, and it's, you should get him on sometime. It's a Thing. He's gone on now. He's in the summer. He's uh, an assistant forest ranger. He ended oh, up wow. becoming the field medical coordinator at Aspiro Wilderness Therapy in Utah. Um, that he did that for two or three years, and then decided he wanted to be an NYS ranger. And so he's going through the the hoops he has to jump through to get to that at this particular point. So we got him back. <laughs> got him back. Got him back from Utah. Not yes. that I minded going to visit in Utah. It's great mountain biking out there and rock climbing and everything else. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that story is uh, a really good, like, foundational story for kind of where I want to go with the rest of the podcast because it is a stories of gumption podcast, and I can't think of a more gumptious example. Gumptious. Uh, Scrumptiously gumptious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of. Uh, of really where we're going with this and and i know we talked about new improved a little bit but i have a i have an interest in um your work uh with your other half sheila and mm. and the books you've written multiple books or just the one book um uh, multiple and then chapters and other books and anthologies yeah. on like rites of passage and things like that yeah yeah raising you know as you say if you googled raising creative resilient kids bob eckert sheila delarm uh you'd probably find a lot of stuff yeah and so that's kind of where i want to go with this because that initial story i think uh, although you probably didn't plan it that way is a great example of a young teenage kid who's learned a lot of creativity resilience and mm -hmm. gumption and uh let's go let's go with that so sure. um first and foremost what does gumption mean to you i think you kind of briefly said it before but i'd just like you to reiterate what does gumption mean to you well the way i hear it in and through my filters is this uh tenacious uh responsibility taking that mm -hmm. when you see uh something that needs doing you do it, um, even against the odds of social sanction or, you know, hey, I'm only 15 or, uh, you know, who am I to say blah, blah, right? So you step into the fray. And uh, I, the way my filters see this concept of gumption is that when there is a leadership vacuum, for whatever reason that might be, uh, you have inside of your, your being this desire to step into that space um, or to 
be a Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, that speaks for another that needs to step into that space. So somebody that might be more effective than you at that, so that you're more facilitative leader versus the one out front. And I see all of that as gumption. Um, and the, the innovation work, the value systems, the work that Sheila and I were doing with kids that ended up causing us to be in the innovation world, the creativity world was really in so many ways about that. You know, people will also use the word, won't they, Ryan, empowerment or agency, you know, and, yeah. and talk about how we need to enhance empowerment or help people to have more agency, which is a synonym for empowerment in the social work circles. So, um, yeah, and I think we, you know, we were gifted with some great teachers, Sheila and I, and synthesized some things that they had not from disparate bodies of knowledge, bodies of experience, and kind of came up with our way that's been useful to people to unpack some of that for themselves in raising themselves and raising the kids that they might be uh, charged with raising. So, hmm. How'd you and Sheila meet? Well, so back in uh, the mid 80s, I was the director of drug abuse services for Franklin County, where I live, um, rural uh, county of 50,000 people uh, distributed between the north and the south end. North end is in the Adirondack Park where I live, the south end or the, yeah. the south end is in the Adirondack Park. The north end is um, up in farm country, the county seats in the farm country area. So anyway, windmill territory, build, as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. And my job was to build out uh, from zero, essentially. We had no real drug abuse prevention program or treatment program at all to build something out. And um, I was hired for a pittance. And uh, uh, but I'd been laid off from the division for youth. I was working in a wilderness therapy program as a field guide there at that time. And uh, they changed the laws in 84 uh, such that they had to build a bunch of new infrastructure. So they cut a bunch of programs. I was in the cut group. And uh, so uh, and I brought in a bunch of money after, uh, you know, I kind of got myself established and I hired a bunch of school based drug abuse prevention workers. Sheila was the person that I allocated to the Saranac Lake, Tupper Lake school districts. Um, and as she grew up in the Adirondacks, had gone away to school, became a teacher, blah, blah, and was perfect for that, um, that particular arena because she went to that district as a kid on uh, New Tupper Lake well as well. And so that's how we met. I hired her. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. No, <laughs> I did not, tag however, uh, uh, sexually harass her or court her or any such thing <laughs> while she was my employee. She did more harassing of me and not sexually, but just as a boss. Yeah. She yeah. challenged me in some really interesting ways that made me notice her that um, I like being challenged up to a point. And so, as, yeah. And so as, as this uh, dynamic duo uh, continues to evolve as a eventually a partnership, right? Um, did you always kind of know that the two of you were going to be passionate about um, how you raise your future children the way you did? Or did it kind of come, the ideas came together over time from experience? Or tell me about that. Well, experience and practice, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and we were both raised by parents and our parents did some things good, some things not so good. So as we modeled the good stuff and overcame the trauma of the not so good stuff, just like my kids have to, because Sheila and I, we didn't do a perfect job. You know, we, we got some yeah. guidance. I've always told Luke and Hannah that my intention all along, and Sheila's as well, has been to have them at any given age 
be more mature than we were, Sheila and I, at that given age. So that, so that we're, you know, and, and I hope that they have with their partners the same intention with their grandchildren as I will have if they have with yeah. my grandchildren, with their children, as I will have, you know, with that. And so was Sheila. So, you know, it was a, it's a work in progress. One of the concepts that early on kind of came to me, and I cannot say that there was one teacher that got this in me. I think it was the sum of the wisdom traditions that I grew up in. But um I don't believe there's any such thing as a grown-up. There are just growing ups and stuck <laughs> people. That's it. And nor do I believe that there is any person who is constantly growing, you know, like perfect trajectory on a nice upward curve all the time. We flatten out every once in a while. You know, we do some growing and we flatten out. And, um, and I, let's call that we're stuck during that time. So, you know, not two types of people, but two types of Bob, two types of Ryan, two types of anybody. At some point we're growing and at other points we are not. And so my goal has always been, um, and Sheila's as well, is to be as much of a growing up as frequently as we possibly can stand to do that. Now there's times that, you know, as a couple, for instance, you know, I did marriage right. and family therapy in the drug abuse field. So, and we went to marriage and family therapy as a couple, right? Cause we get stuck and we didn't know how to get out of it, you know, with whatever we had wasn't enough. And so we'd get help. So when you get stuck, um, what ends up happening is it's not pleasant. It's humiliating. It's you can't untangle something in your life. So uh, you get curious from that. And so we would go to um, therapy and move further on. So how might we be more uh, growing ups more frequently and stuck less frequently? And so a lot of the work that Sheila and I were doing was how to kind of inculcate that into young people, others who work with young people in the leadership culture at Troop 12. It's well entrenched now. Um, I mean, I inherited a great uh, system already from the scoutmasters that had come before me and the senior patrol leaders that had led before me, before uh, Luke did, for instance. But yeah, so myth of the grown-up. No such thing as a grown-up, just stuck people and growing ups, and that's it. And it's a variable that we have some control over. So. Yeah. Yeah, I've always I've always thought that uh, with some other coaching, of course, uh, to help me see things this way. But um, it was a real it was a really nice uh, paradigm shift for me when I started looking at the success in life and and sort of from this growing up, growings up, you know, concept you're saying of uh, life is not a pursuit to a final destination, but it's the journey along the way, right? And right. like if if you're miserable in that journey, you're not doing it right. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have good days and bad days, but if you're if you're just like, oh, someday I'll get to that 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 peak of happiness. Finally, someday I'll hit happiness. But <laughs> no, 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 no. You gotta you gotta figure out how to how to be challenged yep. while slowly growing and then kind mm -hmm. of maintaining a level of happiness towards yeah. growth. Right. So that's it, that's kind of what you just said. Uh, 
really resonates with me, I would say. Yeah. Well, how many times have each of us and any of the listeners had in their mind some point in the future that's a demarcation goal? So we say to ourselves when we're young, for instance, when I get out of grade school and I get to go to high school, then life will be better or easier. Right. When right. I finally finish high school, get to be an upperclassman, you know, blah, blah. When I go to college, when I get a new job, when I uh, find the, the right uh, mate for myself, um, you know, whatever. When I get a new car, when I get a all these things come and go. They're goals that we move in the direction of, and then we attain that thing. And, you know, life gets, it's a nice thing. It feels good to attain it, but life doesn't get easy. It just gets different. The, yeah. There's a new challenge. Oh, I got a house now. Oh, now you know what it's yeah. like to have to maintain a house. <laughs> so yeah. that leaky roof is your problem you know so yeah. and and so the more we can kind of accept that i like the phrasing not a de uh, destination but add to that phrasing perhaps we have to have a directionality in mind yes so i'm not going towards a destination but i am clear on direction and that yeah. direction is informed by the value systems that we hold uh, strong. So, for instance, in scouting, you know, we have uh, these four kind of core principles, the oath, the law, the motto and the slogan, which are, you know, kind of values driven. They drive behaviors. And so how do you start thinking about that as destination? Myth of the grown up, never mm -hmm. going to get there. How can you do it as a destination? So as an example, one of the things that we do with the scout law, you know, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean and reverent. Right. And so am I that way all the time? <laughs> Just ask anybody that knows me and they'll tell you. Yeah, right. You know, but maybe I'm more that way than I would be if I didn't have that destination in my head. So in yeah. every scout, when a scout moves up a rank, <clears throat> one of the things that they have to do is have a scoutmaster conference in each one of the ranks. Yep. And one of the things we start doing all the way from the beginning, when they they do their first entry level, they've learned at Scout, they've learned the Scout law. They have to know it by heart, but they've learned it as a rote recital. They don't know what it means yet, right? And so I'll say- That's like Pledge of Allegiance and not- Yeah, you know, not really thinking about it. And so um, I'll, and the other Scoutmasters, we all do this now. Whoever does the, the, the Scoutmaster conferences, we say to the kid, run through the scout law in your head and which one do you feel like you need the most work on right now which one is noisiest for you in terms of your own development and we have them start thinking that way and then we self-disclose so we'll say for instance right now and, and no bs you have to really say what am i really working on right now right and um helpful friendly Friendly is noisy for me right now um, because I'm, I'm finding myself with, you know, the politics of the world that we're in right now getting quite frustrated. I have a public health background. I know we can be doing more than we are currently doing uh, on COVID. Um, and so I get myself um, to a place of anger very easily and start being not friendly um, to folks that I could be friendly towards more easily and thereby have a greater chance of influencing things in the right direction. So friendly, I really need to work on that right now. It's a little noisier for me. Matter of fact, one of uh, my committee chair uh, just to the other day on social media integrated me and we'll maybe talk about what that term means. But uh, Moose Jones, a good friend of mine in our troop, 
uh, challenged me that I was being a little less than friendly. He didn't quite say it that way, you know, but that's how I took it, you know, and it was good feedback. You know, because it wouldn't, I wouldn't have gotten that, um, the effectiveness that I had following on that had I not kind of watched myself a little bit better. And I couldn't do it on my own. So I need sometimes every, every, somebody else to slap me upside the head and lovingly Moose did exactly what I needed to have done. So, so we do that at each rank and then we write it in the scout book. There's not a space for it, but we write it right in their rank advancement checkoff thing where you sign the Scoutmaster Conference. Yeah. We have the scout write it. Uh, I, if it's Bob the scout, um, I'm going to write down friendly and I might write a little note about, you know, how I am on social media was what was in my mind. And so then when I get to the next rank, whoever the scoutmaster happens to be at that moment reviewing with me says, so last time you said you needed to be working on friendly and you wrote down social media. What was that about? You remind them. And so how have you been doing with that? And the kid says, well, here's what I'm doing a little different now. Or the kid says, uh, I'm still, I still need more work there. Well, great. You're teaching that the value system is a destination. No. Is it a directionality? Yes. And when I can get a little bit more comfortable with the fact that I am a human being, no more, no less by my very nature, I am a screw up, you know, then, then I don't have to pretend that I didn't. Yes. You know, and I don't have to be quite as defensive. I still am. I still experience shame. Heck, I grew up Catholic. You know, I still experience shame. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, it's not as much. And I can get over it a little bit more. And then as a leader, when I can fess up to my screw ups, it makes it safer for the people around me to do the same thing. Hmm. So I remember one time we when I was an hour bound instructor, we had a kid get away from us in the high peaks. The other instructor and I were tired. The kid was telling us he was going to beat us up all the time. The other instructor said we'd been out there, you know, for him with him. He was like on day 22 of the course. This is a kid, incarcerated kid. And my partner at one point said, okay, you feel froggy, jump. Well, this kid had been abused by adults physically before he got into the jails. You know, all that kind of stuff goes on. And um, the kid AWOLed. You know, it's well, by day 20, they know what they're doing in the Adirondacks. So he AWOLs. And um, it, we did not handle it the way that SOP said to handle it. I had been getting feedback about I was too controlling as a senior instructor. And, and I said, well, I'll get my pack. I got to go because that was the policy. I had to go after him. And my colleague, uh, my junior colleague, he says, well, how am I ever going to learn if I don't go? And push that button about you're being too controlling, Bob. And I did the wrong thing. You know, I let him go. And the kid got all the way out to the end of the Van Hovenberg Road on Route 73 before uh, he got caught. And we got in trouble. Right. Well, here's what happened. We go back to the office after this is all over. We're being debriefed by our bosses. I was in and out of that office in five minutes because they said, so what happened? I said, here's where I screwed up. And here's how we, why we screwed up before that because of a screw up we did earlier. We lost, you know, we weren't well rested. We lost our patience with this kid. Um, I wasn't calling us to a higher degree of patience. And then I, they saw, you know, I was taking responsibility. The other guy goes into the office and uh, he's defensive. And he's in there for like 20 minutes. You know, and he comes back out and he says, I got a whole lot more trouble than you. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He was protecting himself. And once you let go of the myth of the grown-up, you protect yourself a little bit less, you grow a little bit more rapidly. Yeah. 
So that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's all about perspective. You know, it also makes me wonder too, um, kind of how this whole thing relates back to empathy. I mean, the lost, the lost, uh, element of empathy sometimes in our world today, because, uh, how can you, in that situation, you, you had the maturity to recognize your own mistakes, which then makes it easier for someone to empathize with your mistakes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you walked away from that position with a, with a lesson Mm -hmm. versus, um, the opposite of that with your coworker, right? It's he harder to empathize. It just took longer. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it was more it's painful. Harder, so. It's also harder to empathize or or produce empathy of the other party in some way if you're coming in with a very defensive approach. Right. Yeah. Well, think about arguments, you know, you and your wife, me and my wife with a colleague. Mm-hmm. The louder we get oftentimes in an argument is because we do not experience the other person is hearing our point of view. Mm-hmm. And so, um, th- you know, you go back to those old tropes about active listening. I say old tropes because I'm 62 years old and I've been trying to practice that since I was in my 20s. But, but you know, empathy arrives from me experiencing what you are experiencing as if I am you. And I can only get that if I'm deeply listening and allowing myself to imagine what it must be be like to be on your side of it. And, you know, it's that ability to hold two positions in the mind at the same time that are contradictory to each other. My view of our conflict, your view of our conflict. And when I can allow myself or discipline myself to let my own defensive ego go to the side for a little bit and experience the viewpoint of the other, I can then have empathy. And in the creativity world, uh, you know, especially in design work, we do a lot of work to imagine ourselves and the, the, the end user's experience of whatever it is that we might be developing and experience at an amusement park, a new product, um, the way that they flow through a learning module. When we imagine ourselves as the user, um, we can have that empathy and develop a better product. It's the same thing for when, you know, you and I were both very involved um, when scouting was working to be more inclusive. And we were going from uh, essentially the old military model, don't ask, don't tell. And when the military changed to inclusion, we didn't keep up. Right. And so we were going through that. And there was just as much travail and controversy as uh, Boy Scouts of America was starting to think about being more inclusive. And mm-hmm. what was my job during that time as part of Scouts for Equality? I was involved with the uh, adult volunteers of the Boy Scouts of America LinkedIn group. And we were trying to find first fully understand what the conflicts were by asking the questions and not defending about it and hearing the different points of view um, and imagining it from their point of view. And then uh, seeing if we could craft message that could gradually shift that point of view to something a little more mature and inclusive. And uh, we were successful at first in shifting point of view uh, about including the kids that you know, when they join Boy Scouts are 11, most of them have no idea of their uh, sexual orientation by that point, um, or just assuming that they're going to follow the standards. And by the time they leave, they're 18, or if they're in Explorers or others, they're older. And um, yep. 
you know, that they go through that transition while they're part of our system. And so we're going to kick them out. Well, that was an easier thing for people to have empathy for some scout and scout family that that might be happening. Um, it was harder for him to see it in the adults. So now you're and it, it took a while to get that empathy, but we couldn't get that until we understood what the blockages were for the folks that were there. And in some, you know, they, they did not um, ever change their viewpoint. And that's certainly uh, they're right. And but the vast majority did. And that's why we're as inclusive as we are now, including now girls. Yeah, exactly. Do you do you find through new and improved or your um, your work for raising young people um, that that is a very hard lesson to teach? Or is there? It seems like that the ability to empathize and and have the perspective of the other person or the end user as a kid is. Do you see where I'm going with this question? Mm -hmm. Seems yeah. like that's a difficult thing to, like if you had to, I guess the second layer to this question is, I, I haven't read your book and I, I probably should, but um, maybe you can. Which one, the Lightning Less Thunder or Crossroads or Dimension Innovation well, yeah, yeah. yeah, so. Yeah. We, we, or Lightning Less Thunder would probably be more, they're more germane to the conversation we're having now, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the, I mean, I would assume that's just a very difficult um, lesson to teach a young person. Um, but maybe, yeah. maybe I just don't have the same perspective or experience that you do. I mean, yeah. no, I think you're right. I think it is challenging, um, and I think there's two pathways to that learning that are can be guided by elders, and then one pathway that's just unpleasant, but happens to us all anyway. So let's first talk about the two that can be guided and then the one that just happens. Um, the pathway that elders can use to develop empathy uh, in younger people is first to model it yourself. The, you know, the, the sentence stem, um, I can imagine that what that must feel like is, right? Um, that you know you place yourself in the viewpoint of another person and so if your kids or your scouts or your team or your students in a school your grandchildren whatever it might be see you saying that out loud see you hear you imagining that and if you get good enough at it and you're willing to be vulnerable enough about it if they see you experiencing the other's pain as if it was your own. So for instance, when my kids have seen me cry many times, when I um, will be reading about something or watching something on television about some real difficulty someone is going through, and I don't, I don't have any need, um, you know, big boys don't cry. I don't have any need for that silliness um, at this point in my life, nor have I for quite some time. Well, for sure, when I was a teen, I was afraid of doing it because of social sanction. But um, yeah. but they've seen that. And so one is modeling it, you know, putting yourself in an empathetic experience of the other, including the other's joy. Um, I have they've seen me cry in happiness. You know, those stories you read like on Daily Good or uh, those videos you get to watch on Karma Tube or something like that. Or at the end of the CBS uh, nightly news, they do this where they, they put on a positive story. Since we had to listen to 
28 minutes of travail then they'll put right. some, something nice to end the news with i honor them for that that's a nice nice thing they've chosen to do and the kids will see me cry then and i asked one of my teachers one time this buddhist monk that i was studying with um I said, why he was some happened in the setting that uh, we were together in uh, with one of the other participants. And I started tearing up and and I, and I was happy for what I, had happened. And I asked him, I said, why do I cry when I'm happy? You know, when we see these wonderful things occur and uh, and he laughed and he says, you know, Bob, all tears are cried in sadness. He says, unless you get an onion in your eye. And, and I said, so, so he said, what you're doing unconsciously is you're grieving that it's not that good all the time. I thought, well, that's an interesting take on it. Uh, that, that resonated with me to a certain degree, right? Yeah. Not 100% sure, but that's interesting. So, you know, when my children see me uh, tear up or my scouts, they've seen me do this. They see me tear up in front of others, they're experiencing empathy. Um, one of our scoutmasters is an ex-Navy fighter pilot. And he tells, uh, at one of our uh, courts of honor, he was the guest speaker. And he told a story about a carrier landing that he did in his F, whatever he was landing, where he couldn't even see the deck. And all he could do is listen to the guy that was telling him what to do. And as it wow. happened, and he didn't have enough fuel for a go around, so he'd have had to ditch. and. Um, and he caught the wire. I don't know the first one or the third one, but he caught the wire. And as Scott uh, Hochwald was telling that story, there's a gumption story that if he was willing to retell is a useful one. Um, he teared up and what he was tearing up for was uh, the trust that he and that, um, there's a term for it, I don't remember, the guy that was you know guiding him in um, had for each other. And now Scott had to place his entire life in that man's hands and um, and how they did that. And as he told the story about landing and that's when he started crying. And mm -hmm. um, his son uh, who's uh, got Down syndrome immediately when came up and started hugging him. Those kids mm -hmm. can teach us more about love than just about anybody I know. And um, the rest of us are all tearing up as, as well. And um, I can go there easily now and what's in me is an appreciation for the dynamic he told the story of but a deeper appreciation in me is scott being willing to cry in front of the rest of the troop navy fighter pilot about macho as you can get right but here's this guy showing the others that you can allow yourself to have these emotions of connection mm. What a gift. So those are those examples. And then the other is to call it forward from others. You can describe it, imagine it. You can, as an elder, you can imagine what it must be like to, and you tell the story or guide the imagery. So that's the second one. And then, of course, the third one is the school of hard knocks. Sometimes we yep. have good empathy for people because we went through that same travail, you know, and it's a lot easier to do that, you know, to have empathy because we kind of learned what the experience is like, you know yeah so 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 uh you're you are or are not one of the uh quote unquote th just throw your kid in the pool uh to learn how to swim type parents <laughs> no i'm not gonna just throw them in the pool to learn how to swim i'm gonna go in there with them but i'm not going right. to uh what do they call it helicopter my daughter who's a therapist right. now in a wilderness therapy program i had not heard the expression before she called it lawnmower parent Ooh, and most of okay. the she's working with are children of lawnmower parents who have made their lives 
their children's lives too easy. Um, so there's the helicopter parent that's just there all the time, but then there's a lawnmower parent that removes all the barriers. And so uh, there were times, you know, my kids weren't perfect. I wasn't perfect. I'll, I'll use my own example. One time I did a really stupid thing as a teenager. I was, uh, I pulled out of a parking spot in a big truck. I was driving and spraying lawns and I probably had been dosed by the pesticides. This is a little before OSHA was menu maintaining safety. And I was not really a hundred percent. Um, and I kind of sideswiped this little car and stupid thing, you know, just stupid thing. But instead of stopping and doing the right scouting thing, I read, wrote a fake note, right. And put it on the car windshield and drove away. Well, you know, I got caught, you know, yeah. I got caught. And, um, we had a call from my home, from the part of the community where that had occurred. And, um, you know, my brother took the message and I saw what the message was and I knew exactly what it was. So I went out back and I, my dad was sitting out back having a, uh, a coffee or something in, in, uh, in our yard at the time in Cincinnati. And I said, here's what happened. What should I do? My dad was not a lawnmower parent. <laughs> he says to me, well, and he was a great scoutmaster for us as he was coming up. Um, he said, um, well, if it was me, I would get in my car and I would drive right over to that uh, police office, walk right in there, ask for the guy that called, tell him exactly what happened. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, I don't know, was I 16, 17 years old? I was driving, you know? And um, so that's what I did. And um, when I got there, that, that guy, he was like flabbergasted that some kid would come in there and just do that. And he said, well, look, this, this thing you did, you did on private property. He says, we don't usually issue tickets on private property. It's a mall parking lot or something. He said, if you can go over to the place where you filled out the false accident report, because I had to explain the damage on my truck. I made up a story about that. Um, yeah. And to get him to drop the charges, then I won't do anything. So then I go over to this other place and I sit down there and they busted my chops. They made me sit there for quite some time. Now, this is a white privilege story, is it not? This stuff doesn't happen you know, in uh, the racially divided world that we live in. If I had been black or a person of color, mm, a lot less likely I would have been treated the way I was treated. So I want to acknowledge yeah. that reality, right? Um, yeah. It is a point of privilege. And they let me off too. And of course, I just had the, you know, my boss made me pay the deductible. You know, that was my dad, you know, that that was his way of parenting. So, no, I don't think throw him into the deep end. But in some ways, some parents would say what he did was throw me into the deep end. Should have got me a lawyer. You know, what yeah. mm. maybe I don't know if he made a telephone call while I was driving over to Mount Healthy. I don't know. You know, yeah. I don't know. So that, you know, we need to not shield our kids from the consequences of their behavior. You know, and, and that's a lot what scouting, if you think about the way that we do that, the leader of the troop, when we do it correctly, is supposed to be the senior patrol leader, not the yeah. adults. And I see myself as a scoutmaster analogously to a chief petty officer, a chief master sergeant um, in the military with a newly minted lieutenant. That lieutenant outranks me and they make the ultimate decision. My job is to keep them from getting dead. Yep. You know, with good yep. advice, but ultimately what we do is what that lieutenant decides. What we do is what that senior patrol leader decides. And that empowerment based model of leadership development that lets them screw up. So sometimes have you in scouting let somebody else learn the hard lesson because you knew the decision they were making was not the best decision, but no one was going to die. So you let them learn from the mistake. And um, 
it's messy. You know, parents that come yeah. to the scout meetings sometimes that are being led by the boys, they go, oh my God, this is pandemonium. But yeah. yeah. Yep, it is. This is how they learn to tighten it up. So. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Man, so much good stuff in yeah. that. Because, I, I mean, uh, well, I talked to my, my wife works at uh, uh, SUNY Plattsburgh, and she uh, she works in student support services, has sort of her her book of clients, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, all freshmen that she's, uh, they've been identified in some way as uh, needing just a little extra support in their freshman year to make sure mm-hmm. that they come back for their sophomore year, right? right? And uh, interestingly enough, you, 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 I've never heard lawnmower parent before. Yeah. I'm gonna bring what that home to her though, because she's gonna love that because she does uh, experience that a little bit. I think a lot of the staff and faculty are experiencing that um, she came home one day and said that she uh, actually received a phone call. Uh, I forget exactly the specifics, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm adding a little. Sure, tweet, sure. You know, but but basically, call from mom at home, sons of college said he's not doing well. Why didn't you call and why didn't you uh, um, why didn't you wake my son up? to go to class he missed his class <laughs> that's not a lawnmower parent that's a brush hog parent yeah, yeah i'm like that's a zero that's right. turn mower like that's, right. that's everything that's right. in it. <laughs> so that exists you know yeah, sure. and, um, that phrase infantilizing our children maintaining them at an infant infantile level of development by doing everything for them versus giving them like you said the opportunity to as long as you know no nobody's gonna get hurt right um or yep. severely hurt. Yeah, you know? um, yeah. That, that's that's power of that program. Yep, yeah. for sure. Yeah, it really is. So um, you re- I referenced your book early in the podcast. I re- referenced uh, or your books, and um, we referenced them slightly before that little segment there. But what could you just say for the listeners what your books are and what uh, the general premise of them is? So in case well, anybody's curious about them. I've been most prolific around the dynamics of creativity, innovation, or problem solving, right? And mm-hmm. why that mm-hmm. is, is that, you know, my mission statement has been clear since I was 19 years old. I facilitate great change for the health of humanity in a balanced and appropriate way. Dooby dooby doo. Don't take yourself too seriously, Bob. So, um, <laughs> which now has morphed. The initial meaning of that was from a, inside of a bathroom stall. I saw somebody wrote um, uh, Frank or uh, Albert Camus: "To do is to be." Uh, Jean Paul Sartre: "To be is to do." Frank Sinatra: "Dooby dooby doo." <laughs> perfect, because you're taking yourself so seriously, Bob. You know, lighten up a little bit. Um, this one, more lightning, less thunder, um, is a guide to energizing innovative teams. I wrote this with my partner Jonathan Vihar. Um, and it brings together some of the stuff he did around creativity in, in grad school um, and his background in advertising, along with all this human development stuff that, that I've been doing. Um, and that's focused on really that same mission statement um, from the point of view of building a highly effective innovation team. There's workbooks associated with this self-guidance thing. There are a lot of companies that use it as their onboarding process for new employees. And these cohorts of new employees go through this workbook together. Um, and read and learn and practice around it. So that's that. And, you know, I just, I have to write, you know, I'm one of those folks that um, uh, I'll get something in my mind and I have to record it. So at one point, um, 
the article, it's just an article that you were talking about, um, raising creative, resilient children or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I realized that kind of, you know, our kids had moved on and they were both working um, as adults and being helpful to others. And I realized, well, we did some things right. And so maybe we can decode that and be useful for other parents, right? So I wrote a draft of it. I had my wife, Sheila, take a look at it. Um, and then we shared it with Hannah and Luke and had them poke at it too. So really all four of us wrote it, although Hannah and Luke said, no, dad, you're not putting our names on that. You and mom wrote this. So we just had them. Hannah, I said, what did I forget? And it's a baker's dozen of little kind of bullet point strategies. You know, it's like silly things in a way, um, but that have great import. Like you never tell your kid they're smart. Just don't do it. Tell them they're good learners. And I bet you immediately get the difference between those two things. Mm -hmm. One's static, one's dynamic. Um, you're so smart. Um, what would you rather have, a smart kid or a kid that could constantly learn, you know? Or an adult that feels that they're smart, um, biting my tongue at the moment, versus an adult that uh, is a constant learner, <laughs> you know? And so, um, yeah, and so that's... You know, that was that piece. And, you know, we went through it and, and they pointed out some things that we did that, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, and um, so that that helped that. And then Rites of Passage was work I did earlier on before the innovation field. So there was an anthology put together from a conference we all spoke on, um, you know, about essentially how do we move people from one state of being to another state of being and how do you cement that so that that new way of being sticks with them and that's built into the way that we do our innovation skills development training for people so there's a rite of passage element within the innovation for results course for instance whether you do it face to face or virtually and then where i've been writing more recently um in the innovation space is we do all these trainings, you know, in creative process methodology um, and, you know, new and improved offers a lot of different ones, as does the broader field. Uh, but those trainings and skill development around creative thinking, creative process methods, you know, design thinking, human-centered design, creative problem solving, synectics, Kepner-Trego, De Bono's lateral thinking, all these different things, um, they seem to extinguish over time. So being the guy I am, uh, I get really frustrated with that. I don't want to waste people's times. And these are really valuable tool sets. So how do organizations extinguish these things and what can we do to fix it? So about 20 years ago, so I've been in this for 30, about 20 mm -hmm. years ago, I started to see that uh, extinguishing uh, dy dynamic and, um, and started to figure out what we could do to keep that from happening. And that's been my more recent work, much more at a systems level from kind of the old fart in the creativity field that's kind of seen all the failures of the creativity field over the years. You know, one of my colleagues one time at the Creative Problem Solving Institute, this is a conference I've been on the faculty of for about 27, 28 years. We were yeah. sitting around, she'd been around for a long time. She says, you know, people come as individual contributors or even teams from their business to this conference and we break them. And she didn't mean it like in the military terms. We're going to break you and build you back stronger. She meant it like we ruin them. You know, they're yeah. ruined because they're going to go back to work and try to do this stuff in a milieu that is not going to be uh, innovation supportive. And, um, and they get squashed. And I can tell you many anecdotal stories of people that go back to large systems in all kinds of big Fortune 100 companies trying to do this stuff. And they just, after a while, they say, the heck with it. I'm not going to keep beating my head against a, a resistant wall, the gator brain wall of the organization. And so they go out on their own. They start yeah. their own businesses. You know, they start sometimes. I've got one great case example. The guy's now selling product back to the company that he quit. <laughs> so, you know, it's an engineer.
So, you know, how do you do, how do you develop that? And so you can see the thread that in my mind runs all the way through that. And it's like helping people be great. Biopsychosocial, spiritual health. How do we enhance that? And how do we build systems that can enhance that for people? So that we get to these gnarly things like COVID-19 or um, any other thing, global you know, climate change or uh, social injustice issues and racism and um, how can we how can we do that you know why can't people understand it, it floors me that people you know confuse the idea that black lives matter means others don't no it's just that we've been mistreating people for so long we need to we need to do some extra here to kind of yep. overcome some of that difficulty that's all that means you know, it's yep. like, and so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna pay a little more attention. I'm sure glad I, I'm not, I'm not black. You know, I, what would have happened to me back when I sideswiped that truck in Cincinnati, Ohio, and let's say that was say 1973. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you uh, You know, a black laborer driving that. If I had been my boss, my boss on the. Uh, masonry crew that i worked for cecil was from uh jamaica and wiry strong guy taught me a lot about masonry but if cecil had done the same thing and driven away yep, yep. there's a quote there's a quote uh, yeah there's yeah. a quote uh that's um white white privilege is when forgive me for white privilege is when equity feels like oppression <laughs> yeah yeah right if i treat you fairly so, i'm being oppressed <laughs> right yeah, so right. so you break that apart it's a very simple quote i i often screw it up because it's so simple but when when equity feels like oppression mm -hmm. so you feel like you're losing something or you're being oppressed or taken advantage of or you're not getting a fair shake but it's really recognizing that it's, it's equity yeah right we're moving in that's that, the defensive tactic yeah that's the defensive yeah. gator brain as you would yeah. say responding yeah. to that situation but, i feel like you're taking yeah. something away from me by making things fair Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's like crazy but there yeah. it comes back to empathy right so for a yeah. lot of folks you know for me maybe it was easier and you know, when I was uh, a young Jesuit, one of the places that I spent a lot of time was the Emmanuel Community Baptist Church on, over the Rhine in Cincinnati, working with kids um, mm -hmm. and at summer camp and then volunteering in the winter there. And I got to the, um, the over the Rhine area in Cincinnati has always been the ghetto there. It's usually an integrated ghetto with white Appalachians and people of color that are, um, you know, having trouble economically uh, getting a foot on the ground. And um, but you know, so I got to see it firsthand and, and, you know, not experience it the way a person of color experiences it or a rural uneducated Appalachian person experiences it, it might happen to be white. Um, but, um, you know, and they have a harder go of it. Oh, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. What's well, a lot easier to do that when your dad was in the Air Force, learned leadership. He's a Midwest regional sales manager for Colgate Palmolive. Um, he's a well-connected scouter and he's white and you know blah blah and you went to an all boys jesuit high school yeah you know exactly yeah i had an easier go of it than a lot of others doesn't mean i didn't work hard doesn't mean i built a lot of what i've built myself but yeah. i started from an easier platform right so yeah, yeah. didn't know we were going to go yeah. there but 
<laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's relevant. Today, yeah, though. we're not going to make progress unless we get past it. Yeah, the date of this podcast, I mean, these, like, this is a conversation that needed to happen a long time right. ago, and it's going to need to happen for many years to come. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. a relevant thing, and it seems kind of interesting that, you know, two pretty pretty uh, privileged white dudes to talk about it, right? That's yeah. how it happens, right? Well, if anybody, otherwise we, you need don't, to, we need to yeah, hold each other accountable to this stuff, you know? Exactly. So... You know, not let it fly. And it's the same thing, you know, with think about innovation. So why is all this so important to us as a society mm -hmm. is that so, you know, the biggest common problem that everybody's experiencing would be COVID-19 right now. Certainly people of color have that plus. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And but you and I might have it, you know, certainly at no one improved as a training company. We're doing some online stuff, but our volume of sales has dropped, you know, and it will be down. I'm, I'm not worried about it. It'll come back up, but you just can't do face to face. And so, yeah. um, you know, this COVID-19 is a problem we really need to solve. And it's going to take some um, really innovative thinking in terms of that and great empathy for the uh, problems that are created in various sectors. You know, the big polarity we fought at first was, you know, do we shut down the economy or do we not shut down the economy? Because there's consequences both ways. Do we wear masks? Do we tell everybody to wear masks or do we know that the body politic is untrustworthy? So we can't tell everybody to wear masks at first because we don't have enough for our healthcare workers. So we're going to be dishonest with them and say, don't wear a mask until we get the supply chain bill for our healthcare workers. I'm not sure if that was the best decision. Decision, but that was the decision that was taken, right? Now we've got to dig out of the idea that, oh, masks don't work. No, they do. That's why we needed them for the healthcare workers. But you need to yeah. wear it yourself now. Oh, but it's against my freedom, you know? And, well, you got to have empathy for somebody that, that feels that that's the dynamic with them. And why do they? Well, you know, they felt like they've been having things taken away from them for a really long time. And it's white privilege, right? <laughs> you know? And yeah. it's just fascinatingly complex problems. But until we decide uh, that we can all work together on it and choose to listen to each other and and put new things in our head um we won't solve it um and it, it's just fascinating that way we're playing with the idea in our scout troop you know we've been mountain biking together because we can maintain good social distance when we're mountain biking that's been our summer program but yep. we're, we're now thinking about what else could we do and that's requiring a lot of give and take and how can we make this all go real safely within everything that's going on and i you know it's my expertise is in pandemic i've been involved in pandemic risk mitigation since 2005 you know as a think tanker and also as a facilitator so you know i knew about this stuff in december and uh yeah so you know so i have to be the guy that everybody pushes against you know and that's not always the fun thing but so be it you know yeah you, you bring it all full circle and the myth of the grown-up yeah. can be and, and your your sort of life mission uh of what you're trying to teach people uh in that context it's if i'm hearing you right you know it's a it's a journey not a destination as i sort of said right and um I think once people recognize that you don't, once you, so once you, once you master, uh, you know, white privilege course 101, oh, you all of a sudden realize there's 202 and 303 and 404 and 505. That's right. And, and, and you don't necessarily, you won't, maybe won't ever pass 404, but you can try and pass 202. And you got your life, you know, that's what you've you been doing to right. work with, you know, and. 
um, a couple of us, we were talking over the weekend, um, actually Luke and Hannah's godparents, uh, Newell and Allie, uh, were here and we were talking, you know, we're all older and they are using the language, they're on their third act. And the third yeah. act is an eldering act. Um, how do you make a difference in the world going forward? And all of us realize that um, if we have our uh, cognitive faculty, we even want to die in a way that grows the people that might be attending us. And um, that, you know, you don't know whether you'll be able to be oriented um, and be cognitively aware. Depends on how you go, right? But, you know, I have this imagination that, um, you know, maybe I'll get one of those deaths where I know it's time and I can still speak and I know it's going to happen in the next short period of time, you know, having done some hospice volunteering when I was much younger. I, I know that sometimes they know. And, um, and wouldn't it be great to pass even giving gifts at the very end, even, you know, making a difference for the world, even in that and uh but you only get to do that if you have that directionality in mind not a destination a directionality yeah. i will do good in every way that i can um with every breath i live to the end of my days and at the end of my days and maybe even beyond through some of my writing and video work and things like that so um you know it's it's a neat way to be and at days when i'm in my funks and boy i've certainly had them with you know, this, this has been a very challenging time from a business point of view, <laughs> trying yeah. to figure out what to do, you know, and uh, I'm jealous. My uh, colleague, uh, my associate partner in Taiwan is a German guy. He was working for us out of Munich, uh, Florian Rusler, and uh, he now is in Taiwan. His wife's Taiwanese, and I've got another partner in Taiwan who's an American from Salt Lake City, um, a Mormon guy, uh, but also married a Taiwanese woman. So we've got two people there, and they both train in Mandarin as well for us in PRC yeah. and the People's Republic. And Florian pinged me the day before yesterday. We've got the first face-to-face uh, -face training scheduled a month out from now. And, you know, it's on his it's his, not a new and improved one. Um, they're all associate partners. They have their own businesses. And I said, whoa, how are you going to do that? I'm thinking, how are they going to mask? What's the social distancing? And he says, you know, Bob, Taiwan essentially doesn't have any more COVID. You know, they don't. <laughs> they don't. And uh, they can do this stuff. He said, everybody comes in and gets their temperature changed. Some people might wear masks. Some people won't. But it's just not. We've got like, uh, there's been seven deaths or something like that the whole time in that country. And right now, there are like less than 20 countrywide. That's like the whole East Coast. But they have a different wow. culture than we do. So, And the way they did it was with an innovative idea that we would get all twisted up about, probably in this country. But the innovative idea was they have uh, nationalized health care. And everybody has a card that they use when they go to the doctor or the ER. And that tracks their, EM, their electronic medical record. And they were able to utilize that technology as a way to do contact tracing really fast. And, yep. um, and they got rapid testing. They put a lot of their innovation dollars into better rapid testing, where we put all, a lot of our innovation dollars into um, uh, not so much testing, but more in the vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't have very much rapid testing. They have it at the White House, um, but <laughs> we don't have enough manufacturing capacity to really utilize it the way that Taiwan has. So, you know, it's like, whoa, you yeah. get to do that? Because I love classroom training. Virtual is one thing. I'm not bad at it, but I love being with people to make a difference, you know? Yeah. So it's been a tough time. 
I've had yeah. a few depressing days. <laughs> As I'm sure all of us have. I haven't met anybody oh, that I yeah. know intimately that won't say to me when they're honest, man, I am struggling with some depressive kind of energy these days. Trying to, oh, yeah. to do this. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah. looking forward to the day I can just go out to dinner <laughs> with my wife, you know, and just really enjoy it. Oh, you can go out to dinner not knowing what I know and not, um, you know, I have to be an example, which sometimes sucks, you know. Yep. But yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I got a note from a previous conversation here that you, you uh, had a 12 strategies story possibly to tell. Is that um, it might be around or? that whole dynamic? Um, well, there's there's two 12s in, in kind of my back of three now for uh, there's a lot I took of a strong pivot there. I took a strong yeah, pivot, but okay. I, 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 we've yeah. got some notes and for all listeners, you know, of course, these podcasts, yeah. we always talk ahead of time. Of yeah, well, there's a baker's dozen. It was initially uh, 12 strategies yeah. to raise creative, healthy kids. But there's also these um, when we've taken a look at why does an effort to drive a more innovative culture inside of an organization die down? What yeah. kills it? You know, what kills it? So like, for instance, up in Canada, Norion, which is Canada's radio pharmaceutical manufacturing company. Um, so they make all the radioactive drugs that are needed in medicine for the country of Canada. They have their own reactor up north in Quebec, right? North of Ottawa. And um, maybe it's in Ontario, but um, cobalt reactor. But anyway, they make all that stuff. And so the Ian Mumford, who was the CEO way back in the 80s there, he decided to get every employee trained in creative problem solving, including himself and his new hires, everybody. And so what happens over time? They loved it. They got good value of it. They made some um, nice efficiencies and did some innovation as a part of the training. That happens during the training. But over time, the utilization of these things starts to die. It takes longer in some organizations, less long in others, but it almost always dies out. Why? So I got frustrated with that. So I started figuring out what's killing it. Mm -hmm. And I'd have an idea. So we'd fix that thing. Oh, and it would still die. Maybe not as quickly. Huh? Why did it die? Oh, this. We'd fix that thing. And so we ended up... Uh, figuring out that there's essentially 12 kind of structural systems that have to get in put in place. And it, it, it goes beyond what you and I should talk about on this podcast. But hmm. when you put those things in place, that's what keeps it alive. For instance, just as one example, executives need to be held accountable to innovation fostering behaviors. Leaders and executives need to be held accountable. And it's subtle wording to innovation fostering behaviors as a leader. So what are those things? Well, we know those things. Those things are in here. Those things are in the innovators values, you know, humility, curiosity. If you find you've got an executive that you're working for and has a low curiosity quotient, they are not going to have an innovative organization in their line. So you can actually measure that, right? And you can measure changes over time. Um, you know, are they courageous? Do they have integrity? Do they, are they clear about what they're passionate about? And do they invite other people to those passions? And so there's, you know, those, those systems need to be built. And when you build them, um, and there's like 12, you know, but we had to learn the hard way. How we get to this and they would fail. Why did it fail? Oh, what if we had done this? And finally, we got to a place where it's failure proofed. But man, most people don't want to do that work because it's just so much easier to go. Yeah, we did a design thinking training. 
Yeah, we, we ran an innovation event. Uh, yeah, we sent our people to the Creative Problem Solving Institute, you know, and and it feels like you're making a difference. But um, as one of my colleagues said, and I told the story earlier, when you send people off to those things, you break them unless you can bring them back into a system that's ready to nurture them. It's kind of like, OK, we're going to we're going to pot all these seeds in the greenhouse. Good. We got all these seeds. Pot. Oh, beautiful young little plants. Now let's just go lay them out in the garden. They'll be fine. Or plant them in clay. Yeah. And not water them. Or sand. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, everything does a little bit better with some fertilizer. And so, um, you know, how do you do that in a systems perspective? And we've articulated that. So for your listeners that are in organizations where they wish their organization could constantly improve its innovation. And, and they'll say oftentimes, well, we're already innovative. Well, guess what? There's a way to make yourself even more so. And if you don't, your competitor will. And yep. so you'll lose share to them, no matter what sector of the industry you're in, inclusive of human services. You know, there are not-for-profits that are going after government dollars that if those not-for-profits do a better job than like the state-funded social service employees that are in that union, then those not-for-profits are going to steal pieces away. Um, fine. That's good for me, the taxpayer. But is it good for you, the organization that's having shares stolen from you? So even in human services or the public sector, you know, mm -hmm. it's the body politic. And it's certainly the case in the commercial world, you know. So you, innovate or die. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And as yep. you know, um, you know Lou Platt. Uh, you know the no, who was he? He was the CEO at Deck, I believe. And he said, "Why would anyone ever want a computer in their home?" <laughs> at that time, they were toe to toe with IBM and a successful business. But they did not do any experimenting with personal computing. IBM sends a group down to Florida, hides them from the people in, in uh, Armonk so that they don't kill them off with budget battles. And that was the beginning. That was the Lenovo project, and that was the beginning of the, you know, the, that product line. So, yeah. you know, you got to run experiments. You got to do different new things. So, yeah, I love it. I feel like we could have a whole other podcast just on that. Yeah, but uh, that's the tw twelve good. strategies anyway. Yeah, this is this has been good. Thanks for indulging me in that. I yeah. uh, I wanted to I wanted to ask that question, even though yeah. our podcast took a slightly different yeah. uh, direction today. That was that's good and a good sample for the listeners in case they're curious and in, in getting in touch with you a little bit further. I am going to pivot to the stories of gumption rapid fire sure. section. Yeah, that'll be fun. Completely, completely random yet consistent portion of my podcast because it has nothing to do really. Well, maybe a little bit with what we've talked today, but it's a consistent set of rapid fire questions that uh, I have not prepped you with. And I'm right. going to just rock and roll. You okay. ready? Okay. Here's five today. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, question number one. Uh, what is a book you would gift to a friend and why would you gift that book? Um, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, first one that comes to my mind. And um, I think that uh, Stephen Covey did a great job of articulating uh, some of the things that we need to do in order to continue to grow our, ourselves. And we built on that with more lightning, less thunder. Love it. Number two, what's a piece of advice that you would give to your 18 year old self if you could go back in time, share knowledge that you have now? 
you're going to screw up. Uh, admit it. Uh, move past it. And uh, believe me, everybody else is screwing up too. Uh, you just may be the leader that shows them that they can admit it as well. Nice. Number three, if you could put up a billboard anywhere in the world, uh, it doesn't necessarily matter where, but you can tell me where you would put it. Where What would you put on that billboard if you could put anything you want? The billboard would say the key to a successful future is creative collaboration. Nice. And I can't think of any place that can't get that lesson, but maybe right now the United States. that all over the world. But yeah, probably, I'd put it at the, whatever the most common used entrance is to our government uh, house and Senate. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Number four. If you could spend a day with any historical figure, uh, any historical figure, who would it be and why would you want to spend a day with that person? Out of the culture that I grew up with, it, it would be a day with Jesus. And um, okay. one of the things people will hear me say often is I get really irritated in listening to other people tell me what people said. <laughs> And both in the media, um, I would rather have the direct experience. And so um, growing up Catholic as I did and now being a little bit more uh, polymathic in my uh, religious tastes than that, it sure would be neat to go back and see see what was real. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. what did the dude really say? You know, what does he really yeah. think? You know, and uh, that would just be a hoot, you know, so that would be fun. It's a good answer. Um, question number five, this is my favorite question of all the rapid fire questions. If we could assemble a three person board of directors, a personal board of directors for Bob Eckert for, to guide and mentor you in your personal life, uh, for the rest of your life, who would those three people be and why they can be alive, deceased, famous or not, but who would the three people be? on your personal board of directors and why? Hmm. I, I would have to find um, a shaman out of one of the Aboriginal cultures, a well-respected okay. person that worked um, a little more esoterically than the kind of Western mind does. So somebody that works in the, um, so the, you know, the, the Don Juan of Carlos Castaneda's uh, yeah. name or the Socrates <laughs> in Dale and Millman's book. It would be great to find such a person, right? So that really would stretch me. Um, that would be one. Um, so yet to be named shaman. Okay. Um, I... The next place I'm going is a large system strategic thinker kind of person, right? Okay. So someone that uh, shifted a large system um, in, a, in a way that was elegant. Um, Dr. Mm -hmm. King might be an example of that. So he went and studied, you know, with Gandhi, I think, a bit. Um, but he figured out, you know, he was in part leading the last step change we had in social justice. Yep. So... Um, 
somebody like that. And then um, out of my culture, um, the, the founders of the constitutional United States, our republic, um, th those guys just thought together so well. Man, I, I would just be privileged to be in the gallery watching them have their arguments with each other, um, yeah. I think. And so within that context, um, it really would be fascinating to pick Jefferson's mind um, mm. and to have him be my mentor around that stuff. So, um, so those three, um, Jefferson, King, and I think of the two, I would pick Socrates. Um, yeah, right. Shaman, you know, not Socrates, the Greek one, but Socrates, the uh, shaman that taught Dan Millman. Was it Dan Millman? Yeah. The Way of the Peaceful Warrior? I haven't read that. Yeah, interesting story. It's a good story um, that he wrote. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. I'm in the middle of um, uh, reading Alexander Hamilton. Hmm. So uh, I, I think uh, if I had to answer that question today, and for similar reason to your third choice, I would pick Alexander Hamilton. Huh, interesting. Very interesting financial mind. Actually butted heads with uh, Jefferson uh, quite a bit, it sounds like. But huh. in the end, Jefferson gives a lot of credit to Hamilton, even though he disagreed at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, pretty profound. Well, the, way those, the way those guys work together, to my read, yeah. you know, they yeah. were an innovation team. They held their yeah. ground. They, they gave ground. They, they, they would not accept anything less than excellent and so yeah. and they had that common value and they had a life experience where they they saw a lot about what didn't work and they paid enough attention to the longhouse people um yep. you know that they built some of the things that really were excellent in the longhouse tribes into our system of government um they they learned a lot there so you know they were willing to look pretty broadly you know in yeah. terms of where could we learn from systems of government that worked and didn't work and it's you know the the people that were in this region of the country um the the first nations folks the native americans um they had a pretty good system put together in terms of how they got along with each other you know, yeah. so, so, <laughs> you know, they're a good model of an innovation team, the, the fathers of the, you know, the constitution. So. I love it. Yeah. Well, Bob, this has been great, man. I, I uh, always enjoy our conversations and uh, Ditto. definitely enjoyed this one. Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to just, before we close this thing out to do any final um, message to the listeners and also if you'd like how they can get in touch with you or any final plug uh, sure. that you'd like to share sure well i guess you know um how do we be great right the one thing that abraham lincoln always did was at the end of his speech it was never a good speech it was never a good sermon in a church in his mind unless the the preacher or the speaker challenged us all to be our greatest selves and so in the context of what you and i have been talking about um, empathy creativity uh, empowerment uh, paying attention to others learning never stopping learning the more each one of us is willing to be in the beginner's mind the learner's mind the more likely we are to make the novel connections of previously unconnected thoughts that will find 
through which we will find our way out of the challenges we face at this particular time. Innovation and creativity will get us there, but they will only get us there at the pace that we do the hard work of listening and learning from viewpoints other than our own. Whether we're an engineer looking at periods, areas of engineering we don't know, or we're a politician and looking at a different viewpoint, or we're a social worker learning a new way of raising children. Um, it's the newness that will get us further along. So my challenge to myself and my invitation to you is when I'm not doing this, you're welcome to challenge me and be my integrinator is what might I do and what might we all do to continually learn, listen, and grow, and therefore have greater wisdom so that we're more likely to find the solutions to these very complex problems. Um, and never let this phrase pass your lips. They should just. Because when we say they should just, it means that the person speaking does not understand the complexity of these problems. Because if all they needed to do was that one little thing, they darn sure would have done it. Things are complex. Yep. Things are complex. So, and if uh, if this inspires anybody to read more, certainly you know you can find our publications. I write a lot. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I got like eighty articles on LinkedIn and videos. Um, and then our website, uh, newandimproved.com, uh, has uh, quite a bit of material there as well. YouTube channel is Innovative Brains. Some stuff's behind a paywall, but there's a lot of free value uh, at Innovative Brains whichever, you know, YouTube's, that's our innovation channel. Uh, there's probably about 80 videos there, but you can see maybe 40 of them. So without paying anything. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, thanks for well, the opportunity, Ryan. It's always fun to kind of think out loud about this stuff. Um, yeah. From, from my bunker. <laughs> you know, yeah, man. So. You, you're all kept up in your bunker. That's yep. okay. You're staying safe. Yep. Well, this has been another episode of Stories of Gumption podcast. Thanks again, Bob. Appreciate you.